I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome back to The Brand is Female. In this episode today, my guests are Justine and Kendall Barber, sisters and co-founders of Poppy Barley, a socially conscious footwear and accessory brand dedicated to challenging, pun intended, every step of the industry. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship programs. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. When they realize that the average garment gets worn seven times before being tossed and the fashion industry is responsible for 10% of global greenhouse emissions, Justine and Kendall Barber, co-founders of Poppy Barley, a Canadian slow fashion company focused on quality, sustainability, and ethical production, decided to create a new kind of luxury in fashion. And that they did. Today, the brand is thriving and meeting the needs of consumers in search of responsible accessories and footwear. Kendall has always been committed to giving back to the community as a member of the Thousand Women Advisory Committee for Northwest College, a board member for YWC Edmonton, a run ambassador for Lululemon, and a supporter of Hope Mission's Kids in Action program. She was selected as one of Avenue Magazine's 2014 Top 40 Under 40 for her work at Poppy Barley and Western Living's List for the Ones to Watch Roundup at the 2014 Designers of the Year Awards. Justine's work history with time spent working in consulting, conflict prevention, and Alberta's 10-year plan to end homelessness reflects a commitment to social change. She's won the Alumni Innovation Award from the U of A and was named one of Western Living's Designers of the Year, Once to Watch, and Global Edmonton Woman of Vision. Here's my conversation with Justine and Kendall Barber of Puppy Barley. Kendall and Justine, it's a pleasure having you on The Brennies Female today. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you for having us. I like to go back in time at the start of these conversations, and it's one of my favorite questions to ask guests. I want to know, growing up, what kind of future did you imagine for yourself from a career standpoint? What kind of professional uh, life did you think you were going to have? So whoever wants to go first, Kendall or Justine. Sure. Um, So... I always knew that I wanted to have my own business. Um, we worked, not our father worked for the railway and we moved a lot growing up and it just felt like there wasn't a lot of control. We lived one place and then our dad would be transferred somewhere new. And I really craved like the ability to make my own decisions. So I always knew that I wanted to have my own business. I think before I even really knew what an entrepreneur was or those things, it was like, I want to do my own thing, but I had no idea in what. So like, I never dreamed of a certain thing. It was just like, I dreamed of having my own thing. Yeah. For me, I wanted to be a fashion designer and then an actress and then an architect. Those were the three (laughs) things that, yeah, throughout kind of from elementary to high school that I spent time wanting to be. Well, it's interesting because that is actually not too far removed from what you're actually doing today. So I can see a connection. And tell me about kind of those, you know, next steps. What did you study in school and where did that lead you as a, as a first professional job or, or maybe as a, as a first business? Uh, Kendall, do you want to go first? Absolutely. So I went to the University of Victoria. I started in sciences um, and within the first year realized I should not be in sciences. Like labs were the most dreadful thing to me. <laughs> um, so I moved over to business. So I have a bachelor of commerce from UVic. And then my very first job was in technology transfer 
coming out of the post-secondary institutions on Vancouver Island. So in a, in like a fun way, I worked mostly with student entrepreneurs that were developing things mostly in computer science and engineering. And then we would spin their technology and their IP out into companies. I'm making it sound like, you know, really wonderful, but like, really, I did the research. Like that was my first job is I did the research. And I remember my boss at the time, he said something to me, I'll never forget. He said, when you're doing your career, the 80-20 rule applies in reverse. So at the beginning of your career, you should like 20% of what you're doing and 80% you're doing because you're building towards what you want to be doing. And then hopefully at the end of your career, the reverse is true. Like 80% of your work fills your bucket and you're always going to have 20% that you don't love. And that job, I was definitely doing 80% of things that were dreadfully boring. <laughs> um, but that, that was my start. It's, it sounds really cool, though. And, and you know, as we know, there's a shortage of women in, in STEM. So it's very interesting that you were right there in, in kind of that tech landscape from, a, from you know, a starting point for your career. Um, I also did a Bachelor of Commerce. I went to the University of Alberta afterwards because I was still really interested in architecture and urban planning. I worked for a year at like a sustainable architecture firm. And then I did a master's of war studies, which was a field that had long interested me, worked briefly in conflict prevention in Belgium, and then actually worked for the government on the 10-year plant and homelessness in Alberta before starting Poppy Barley. It, that sounds amazing too. Wow, that's that's quite a start. And then you both, uh, you know, did did well, I hate calling it a one eighty, but there mm-hmm. there was a change in in your path. So what led you to want to start your own business? To want to start uh, Poppy Barley, the brand? Yeah, for me it was two things. The first was the changing role of business. So even though I finished as a business graduate, I actually didn't want to work for a for-profit company when I left, which is why I went the direction I did. Mm. But there was, you know, Warby Parker and there was all Pentagonia and there was all these great examples of businesses with a dual purpose. Mm -hmm. So that was part of it. And the other thing was, I just, I wanted to not work on committees. I wanted to make decisions. I wanted to be more creative, like the classic drive Mm -hmm. to entrepreneurship. All valid reasons. Mm -hmm. And Kendall? I think for me, I was just waiting for the right opportunity because it was always a dream. I just needed the idea and I didn't have the idea. Like the idea for Poppy Barley came from Justine. Um, but when the idea was in front of me and when I started working on it, it was like, oh yeah, like this is what I want to be doing. I just, yeah, I really, it was just very clear to me that I wanted mm-hmm. to try having my own thing. I think I would have really regretted moving through a career without taking the moment, like a moment to try something and like give it a real go. So once the idea was there, it was like, okay, I needed a little bit more convincing than like, let's do it. But once the idea was there and we started working on it, then it was, let's do it. It made sense. Yeah. And you had entrepreneur role models around you, uh, Kendall, you mentioned your dad, um, who was a source of inspiration and, and were there women in business that were also role models or inspiring to you when you, when you first started the company? Sadly, no. Um, I can't think of a woman. I was surrounded mostly by male researchers. It was computer Mm -hmm. science, engineering, very male dominated. Like as I'm reflecting back, I don't think I worked with a female inventor. Wow. Um, I had 
in the architecture firm that I worked for, one of the partners was female. So there Mm -hmm. was three partners and there's not a lot of women architects. Um, So that was an example. But I think for us, like, again, our dad was an employee of the railroad. We did have, or we do have two uncles who were entrepreneurs and business owners but I don't remember ever thinking about it as a child. So it was only after we became entrepreneurs that it was like, oh, let's talk to Uncle Rob about this or Uncle Bruce about this. And But very different industries. I Yes, I got it wrong. You did mention that about your dad, but just and you mm-hmm. were, or Kendall rather, you were talking about how you knew you wanted to have a business from a, from a young age. So that seed was already planted. Mm-hmm. And what was it like when you first launched? What, you know, the first the first year or so, um, was it challenging? Was there a moment where you felt like, okay, this is actually going to work? What was kind of, you know, the, 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 the feelings and, and, and the, uh, uh, what was your journey like in, in those first few months of launching the brand? I think working till launch, you know, overall was quite exciting. Mm-hmm. Launching was quite exciting. We sold a hundred pairs of boots in our first 100 days, which was our goal. We went out, we raised a very small amount of fun, funds from angels Mm-hmm. And then the next year was quite painful. It was really, that's where we learned cash till death. Um, <laughs> we developed our elephant skin that I think you develop as an entrepreneur, just from the stress of going into the frying pan. For me, at least starting my own company turned me into a boss for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to really learn how to try to lead people when I had just a ton of pressure on myself. So I feel like the first two years was just a lot of personal growth would be the positive light. Um, And a lot of highs and lows, like a lot of amazing fun moments where like, I did love it for sure. And, but it was just a lot of stress as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Kendall? In the early days, it didn't feel risky to Justine and I, it was like quite a, thoughtful plan. So when we started working on Poppy Riley, we both had our job, like we still both had jobs. We were working in the evenings and lunch hours and early mornings. And like we both built up enough momentum and belief in the business idea, whether it was like through surveys and focus groups and all these things that we were trying to do that when it actually came time to like leave our jobs and go fully into Poppy Barley, even at that point, like the first people we had to pitch to get on side are our now husbands. But at the time it was like, okay, we're going to take four months and here's what we're going to do in four months. And like, if we don't achieve this within four months, then like, we'll go back and get a job. So Mm. it always just felt like, like really measured the risk in the beginning. Um, So yeah, that first year we just like, and we were in a place in our lives that we could put everything into the business. So like, I remember friends around us were in the place, you know, we were like in our late twenties, I had just turned 30 and a lot of our friends were like upgrading their homes, buying new cars, getting new furniture. And we were like, we're staying as is because we're like putting everything we have into like this company and this dream that we have. And like, we, we didn't have kids. Like we were just in a place that we could work crazy hours and do it. And I remember Justine was invited to speak at this like event where she was supposed to like inspire women. And they were like, so what, like, what did you give up to start your business? And she's like, friends, hobbies, all my money and all my free time. And they were like, like the room just like looked back at her, but I think it was true. And I I think that it took us a little bit of time working in that state to then go, if we continue at this pace, we are literally going to be divorced people with no friends and no hobbies. Um, Mm -hmm. And we had to kind of like balance 
our work ethic with like the other parts of our life that we realize are also equally as important to us as building a business. But in the beginning, we could just pour everything into the company. And as Justine said, it was like really exciting and rewarding to do so. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned, uh, Justine, that this was the first time you became a boss. And, you know, I'm sure as the, as the company grew, that meant uh, a larger team as well. Um, what's your approach to leading a team? What's your definition of leadership? And what kind of behaviors or, you know, attitudes or philosophy do you try to bring to your role on a, on a daily basis? And it's very interesting that you bring up, you know, pouring everything into the company. And often that's not the best model for employees mm-hmm. as well, right? That's not always how we um, create kind of that healthy engagement and healthy culture within a company. So what does that look like today uh, in terms of both of you being leaders for the company? Yeah, something that, so I think we had strengths and our I had strengths and weaknesses. I think a strength is that we've always believed that there's only a few things that we're the best at. And there's many, many other things that other people are better than us at. And we want to hire and train those people. And, you know, our first hires are first marketing specialist, customer service specialist, developer, like, so we've always delegated well and given ownership well. I think that what I really had to learn was how to communicate vision and get everyone on the same bus. Mm-hmm. And then a lot about like emotional regulation, how to just mm. be very consistent, level-headed, you know, if something terrible happens, like go for a walk, but don't bring that to the office. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it for me was around, yeah, communication and like emotional regulation. Very interesting. Kendall, for you. I would echo a lot of what Justine said. And in addition to that, I think... As the entrepreneurs, you do carry more of the risk and more of the emotional side of things. So your team doesn't know that you just cashed in your RSPs to make payroll on Friday, but you know that. So then, you know, there's moments where it's like, okay, like we really need to do this, but they don't necessarily know everything that's happening behind the scenes. And then I think one of the biggest things that I had to learn was like, that's my load to carry. Like we can be mm-hmm. transparent. And I would say that we're a very transparent organization. Like we, we do share, I believe very much in like a servant leadership model. So like share the problems of the organization. And if you have the right people on your team, they're going to be motivated and inspired to like fix those, like to solve those problems. And I think we very much have that culture. And, but I think there's being like transparent to a point and then also being like part of our jobs as leader. And that's just both Justine and I, but also now our leadership team is to carry some of the heavy things, like to carry some of those heavy loads and not everyone on our team needs to share it in all the pain. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that was like a really big learning. And then also really, I believe that when people are happy, they do their best work. When Justine and I are happy and fulfilled, we are better leaders. So that goes back to like really filling our own buckets and whether it's vacation, hobbies, like all of those things, putting balance into our lives so that when we show up, we are positive. Like we bring the right weather to work, right? Right. Like how you walk in every day. That's like the biggest thing that we are responsible for is setting that Mm -hmm. tone every day. And outside the organization, have you found um, that, you know, you need kind of that community, that support group, maybe it's trusted advisors that are external to the company. What does that ecosystem look like for you? 
We have a little bit of both. So we have a circle of friends in Edmonton that are other female entrepreneurs. And yeah, there's nothing like talking to another entrepreneur because they know exactly what it is you're going through. So you can share, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of everything. And then we do have a few advisors that are really key. Our fractional CFO is one of our best advisors. And we both in the past been involved in like either mentoring programs to again, have that like cohort of other entrepreneurs. Hmm. And do you find that there's enough support in place for women entrepreneurs specifically? And, you know, this can be at the government level, just organizations, you know, in general that support entrepreneurship and and startups and so on. And do you think that, you know, it's important to continue to support women entrepreneurs specifically? I think there's definitely still a large funding gap that is Mm -hmm. trying to be addressed through various government and organizations. Um, But I think that's still the biggest difference is that, you know, 2% of venture capital goes to women and that men have most of the large businesses. And that I think that there are just some biases against Mm -hmm. women when they present as an entrepreneur. Is that something that you've experienced in trying to raise funds or, you know, working with partners or suppliers? Yes. Yeah. I think that For example, I was recently in a meeting where I kept being called emotional, you know, and I wasn't being emotional. And I, and it was one of those, like, you would never call, had I been a male, I don't think they would have ever used that word. Mm -hmm. And I think it was just the investor's bias as to what, so that's an example. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we've had some great supporters, you know, most of our investors are men, angel successful angels who wanted to give back and saw something in us. Right. But but yeah, I think that sometimes you're in conversations where it feels that biases are there. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I think about the amount of times that people ask us about like lifestyle businesses. Mm-hmm. Like what is what does that mean, mm-hmm. a lifestyle business? Because I can tell you that my lifestyle has taken a hit to create the business, but like, what, like, what do you mean? And I just like, when I talk to my male counterparts, like when I share some of the questions that investors or advisors or people outside of the company ask us, they're like, what? He, like, never in my career have I asked that. Or like, oh, do you plan to have more children? And it's like, again, like, that's just not something you would ever ask yeah. a, a male. So I do think that the climate needs to change. I also you know, on the flip side, as I've started to like, try to do some small and very small investing, I'm going to like these investment summits, it's all men that are there. So -hmm. the way that they like evaluate ideas and look at things is through their own experiences, which makes sense, but we're missing a huge part of the population. So um, I think that we need to create more women entrepreneurs. And then we need those women entrepreneurs to write checks to other entrepreneurs. And I really think that that's like a really important cycle is that women need to write more checks and we need to write more checks to each other. And if that's starting small, we start small and then hopefully they get bigger and bigger and bigger. But we really need to create our own ecosystem as much as possible. 
This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women and Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice, plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD Services for Women in Business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way, so we can all share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. That was going to be my next question is what can we do to change, you know, that reality and, and, and kind of rewrite that narrative. Um, and you've just, you've just sent that uh, very well. Um, I mean, there are more women funds now we're seeing more VC funds, you know, led by women investing in women, which is very promising. And do you think that, you know, for, for women who are looking to raise for their, for their companies, for their startups, um, is it just, you know, how would you deal with a situation like that? If you're facing an investor who is asking the wrong type of questions, who is showing bias, who is showing, you know, uh, using sexist stereotypes, would you challenge what they're bringing up in, in, in that conversation? Is it something that, you know, is a good, is it a good idea to give them feedback on, on what you're mm -hmm. noticing? <laughs> I think this is tricky because the first time that we raised money, which was 10 years ago, we were so desperate for money. Like, you know, when you're in a place of desperation, like, no, I, I don't think I would have had the courage to be like, actually, you're being a sexist pig right now. Like, I don't think I would have had the courage to like provide the feedback then. And like, even now, I'm not sure if I would, I'd like to think that I would pause and say, hey, um, like, can we reframe that or rethink that? And I would say that I better at doing that when I'm at the table with them as a fellow investor. Opposed right. to when I'm mm. at the table as the entrepreneur asking for money. Absolutely. Right? Like it's just the power balance is different and it's mm -hmm. still a really tricky place to be in. Um, having said that, I do think that hopefully you build your company or your company in as a position as such that you can be like, you know what? I don't want your money. Mm -hmm. Like I think mm -hmm. that we can like decline money and be more careful about the partners and the people that we're surrounding our business with. But that's really easy to say when you aren't like <laughs> desperate to like raise that next round for your business. I hear you. No, when you need the cash, it's a, it's a little delicate to mm -hmm. do that. Uh, well, and it goes to your point, having more women writing those checks and more women at the investor's table and perhaps those funds as well that are male dominated can bring in more women, right? Um, so there's, there's, there is a light at the, at the end of the tunnel. We have, we have a long ways to go. Um, I want to talk about um, what growth looks like for you. And earlier in a conversation, you talked about when you first launched a business, you set very clear uh, milestones. You know, we've got to achieve this in four months. We've got to achieve this in six months. Is that still your approach to growth and kind of planning for the future of the company? Or is it more of an uh, uh, organic and kind of intuition-based uh, model? Our no, we're definitely still more of a planned approach. I think because we've been in business longer, it's possible to expand our time horizon. Mm -hmm. So we now create a pretty like vivid and detailed three-year plan that we're working towards. Part of that, you know, for us, we're developing product 18 months out. So that's not even that far into it. We're opening stores normally 12 months out. And then again, I think that one of the things that 
you keep as founder and CEO is creating and communicating that vision Mm -hmm. and then getting everybody on your team working towards achieving the plan. So that's something that we, it's a primary responsibility for us. Kendall, anything to add? We love metrics. I think we always have. (laughs) Um, I think that it's, it's really nice to feel success. Like when you Mm -hmm. hit what you meant, like what you set out to hit. And I, I think you can be lofty and you can have these visions that are not tied to a metric and describe it so richly that you also know when you've hit that and been successful and that there's like a balance of both that goes into the planning. And one of the best things that we did from a leadership perspective is put like a rigorous business implementation model around how we run our business. So that's, you know, three-year plan, one-year plan broken down into quarters that leads into team work plans that leads into individual work tech plans. And once we were really able to set that, everyone is clear and clarity is kind. Like, I really believe that if you know what you're supposed to be doing and how you contribute and how your work impacts the organization, that's like really powerful, no matter where you sit in the organization. Mm, very good point. Um, speaking of you know, leadership culture, you are a B Corp uh, certified company. Um, there's not that many in Canada and there's not that many uh, that uh, produce consumer goods. Um, what, where did the, the need for you to become B Corp come from? And I know that values of sustainability are very important and have been kind of a, a guiding line since the inception of the brand. So what, what does that mean for you? And why was it so, so important from, from the early days on? Yeah, you're right. So in the beginning, we really focused on ethical production. So really knowing our manufacturers, screening them for good working conditions And then as we got a few years in, we decided to pursue B Corp certification for two reasons. The first is that it gave us a broader framework in which to work with. So when we read it, it was like, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Like we should implement that. So it it just, yeah, it creates a framework. And the other is it creates a certification that customers can trust. Again, a lot of words essentially are basically meaningless. You know, sustainability, what does that mean? But it's similar to organic for food, where you have an independent third party verifying, auditing, making sure that you meet a standard. And therefore, it's actually meaningful to be a B Corp. And yeah, so that's why. Mm -hmm. And to go even like a further step backwards, I think this is where you see Justine's previous history working in social policy, Mm -hmm. where and that belief that like business has to be a platform for, for good. And that as a business, we have like a deep responsibility to create a better future and, and really like owning that and create and putting resources to it and not just saying that, but acting on it. And the B Corp was one tool for us to act upon that. So I think it really goes back to the best thing about building a company is that you get to build a company where you set the values. And mm-hmm. so that's a value that's important to us. And so it was like, okay, how do we do this? What does this look like? How do we create, like, we always say our mandate is luxury for the people and the planet. So mm-hmm. what does that Love look that. like? Like, what does that look like to create that? And B Corp was one tool. And it's something that we hold, like, that we feel very responsible for. 
Hmm. It's interesting because I was speaking to Annie Hulo, the founder of Unscented Company recently, and she was talking, it was also B Corp certified, and she was talking about how, you know, in 2023, it would be just, it would be stupid to go in business and not think that your your entire company, you know, is, is not based on principles of sustainability and respect of the environment. And speaking to other, other B Corp entrepreneurs, they've talked about how, you know, why would we create a new consumer good? We have enough clothing. There is, there are enough shoes our landfills are completely full uh, so if you're creating something new it's got to be anchored in sustainability i know that something important for you as well is uh, fair pricing um where did the you know the the idea for fair pricing come from and was it hard to achieve when you started working with suppliers working on you know first prototypes for product was it was it challenging to get there or uh not, or not so much Yes. Um, and I say that in the beginning, we didn't yet know that we wanted to have fair pricing, um, mm. but we knew that we wanted to come in at a price point that was attainable for customers. So I think our original margin was like 25 or 30% because we priced where we wanted the retail price to be, not what our margins needed to be as a business. And whether that was a good mm. decision or a bad decision, that's what we, what we did at the time. And so we have this belief that we want to sit in the luxury gap. So there are cheaply made mass produced shoes and then, you know, bags and products. And then on the upside, there's like luxury goods. And a huge part of what you're paying for in the luxury good market is that brand name. So we were like, okay, we want to produce something that's equivalent quality to a luxury good, but price it and make it sustainably, but price it at a price point that the most amount of people possible could step into that product. Mm. So that was like where it came from. And I think that we are constantly working with suppliers, thinking about like, it starts with the design, like how we're designing a product um, to be able to bring it to market, to reach a certain price point. And there's also an incredible comfort quality that comes with high quality materials, which is a core um, tenant to how we design and think about products is also, we want it to be like unbelievably comfortable. And ideally we want to be like the most worn pair of shoes, the most carried bag in your entire wardrobe. And to do that, it has to be comfortable. It has to feel amazing. And you have to feel really good about where it came from. Love that. And congratulations on, on achieving that and maintaining those standards, you know, since, since you started the company and as you continue to grow it. And you are two sisters at the, at the helm of the company. What is it like working with a sister as business partner? I think you know them exceptionally well. You care about them. Um, you see them a lot. So, you know, we see each other. We just, <laughs> last week, we're on a family holiday together. And then now this week we're at work together. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of overlap in our lives. Um, but I mean, it's, I think it's allowed us to be very, very close as adults because mm -hmm. there is so much overlap in our lives. Anything to add, Kendall? <laughs> as sisters, the one thing is we have a lot of the same value system, which I mm -hmm. think then comes into play in the business. I think there's also deep respect for each other's work ethic and um and like truly believe like I have never for one second doubt like thought that we weren't both committed to Poppy Barley both at the same level and at the same time because she's my sister I ultimately care more about her as like a person 
Right. And I care about her family. And I think that there's also space to be like more compassionate on that side. And that's one of the reasons that we've always led together as like co-founders and then co-CEOs is the ability to like support each other, both at business, but also in life. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I've, I've only had one business partner that's my sister. So I don't know if I would feel the same if I had a business partner that wasn't my sister, but I think I feel that even more strongly. Like mm-hmm. when it just seems like, okay, I want to like, I don't know, do this incredible trip with my family and I'm going to take a month off. I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited for both her as a person, for her as a family. Mm-hmm. And I, and I believe that she'll come back and bring incredible things back to the business too. And that she'll then in turn support me with my ambitions outside of work too. Mm, love that. What is next for the brand and for the company? What's on your vision board for the next six months or the next year? Uh, the next year, we're focused on continuing to expand nationally with our primary focus being Ontario. Now that we've recently opened a store in Vancouver, and that's where we're really seeing just a ton of growth. And obviously, a lot of Canadians live there. That's a big focus, expanding our factories. So currently, we're looking into Portugal for some new footwear factories. Revisiting becoming carbon neutral is something that we'd like to mm. explore as like a major sustainability goal. Amazing. And then, yeah, some internal kind of process improvement. You know, that's not that interesting to talk about, but... <laughs> not that sexy, but yeah. it's so important. Yeah. yeah. I think it's... We've always found with Poppy Barley, you go like through an increasing inflection of growth. And when you're going through that growth, you're just like hanging on. Like you're just like, okay, we're just hanging on and it's capital intensive, resource intensive. And then... But you can't stay in that spinning cycle. So once we like have that growth inflection, then it's like, okay, now we need to do like all the undercover maintenance work, which is mm-hmm. process budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are we using the right platform still to do the things that we need to do? Do we have the right factories and like that type of work to really, you know, put the foundation in for the next level of growth, but also to ensure that the health of the company from a financial perspective stays really solid. So I think that's Mm. something like we don't talk about enough. It's always so fun to talk about like, okay, then we're going to grow and we're going to do these things. And it's like, yeah. And, and we need to like look under the hood and like, make sure that the engine that's running this is like solid too. So I think coming out of COVID, it's been a crazy 18 months for us from a growth perspective, like 60% year over year growth. We're just like that. And now we need to go, okay, like continue to grow. We've got a plan, but also, um, are we solid to execute on that plan? Right. Right. And well, and, and wishing you, uh, the best on that, on that journey to, uh, improving all of your processes, um, in the meantime, you know, you've gained a lot of experience. You have amazing insights on, on running a business, being B Corp certified. What would be your top advice to women who are starting a business? Maybe they're running a business. What are three things that you'd like them to know? And it can be three things each or combined <laughs> up to you. I think, so my first two are very practical. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Love practical advice, always helpful. Yeah. So we use, yeah, the entrepreneur operating system to run our business, which Kendall mentioned, which is the two-page plan, the three-year vision, the quarter. And I think that's just super helpful as a framework that you can apply to any business. So I would read the book Traction and look to implement that. Another very helpful piece for us has been a three-way financial forecasting model that we've implemented and has a lot of value. And then I think the third thing is to 
more about like your personal development and developing, you know, some sort of resource for yourself, whether that's a business coach or a mentoring group or a circle of entrepreneur friends. And just knowing that like you will have places you want to take things Mm -hmm. while you present that calm, emotionally regulated best side of yourself to your team. So creating that resource for yourself. Mm, Love that. Kendall? So my first one would be to create like a vision for your company that inspires your team, but more importantly, inspires yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, I do not believe the saying, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I think it's more like if you do something that you love when it's really hard, you'll stick it out. And, um, entrepreneurship just requires like a lot, like it's so gritty. You have to be so gritty and at times it's really not fun. So I think Mm -hmm. going back to like, you truly believe in what you're building and particularly for female entrepreneurs, I think we need to think a lot bigger. Mm. I think like looking at like pitches coming from men and sometimes you're like, whoa, that's crazy. And then from women, it's like bigger, bigger, like think bigger, Mm. like in your wildest, craziest dreams, like what would this look like? So vision is the first. The second one is, I was going to say financials too. I think you need to understand your numbers inside and out and really understand what the drivers of your business are. Um, And then the third one is hire people who are really talented that are also really crazy, great humans. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that makes such a huge difference when you're like in it, that you're they're bringing so much to the table, but you're also like willing to step up in such big ways for them because you first and foremost think they're incredible humans. So yeah, those would be my three things, vision, humans, and money. (laughs) And well, yeah, absolutely. The three are are very important and you summed that up really well. Um, Thank you so much, Kendall and Justine. It was great hearing about your journey and all your insights and can't wait to see where Poppy Barley goes next. Thank you for making time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you to TD Women and Enterprise for their support of The Brandy's Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandysfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening today. If you did enjoy the show, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.